Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 577 for the 28th of January, 2018. This week, there's a lot of confusion about the two primary formats that digital cameras use to store images, JPEG and RAW data. It's a large and complex topic, so this week we have a large and complex section on the topic as we look behind the digital curtain. In short circuits, users of Adobe Photoshop will find that this month's update includes a blockbuster feature called Select Subject, so we'll see how well it works. For the first time in more than five years, PC sales, Windows and Mac computers both, are up ever so slightly. In spare parts, only on the website, Burger King has weighed in on net neutrality with a demonstration that includes fast burgers and slow burgers. There's a growing need for what's called out-of-band authentication, and cryptocurrencies are hot now. Even Kodak is getting into the game. I've been looking at an open-source imaging program that's modeled somewhat after Adobe Photoshop Lightroom, except that it exposes a lot more of digital photography's operations. This seemed like a good time to talk about some of the unique features that can frustrate people who use digital cameras, so we'll do that this week. Now, I should warn you that this topic is long and somewhat complex, even though I'll be omitting some of the really perplexing stuff. Although the topic could have been split up over several weeks, that seemed unfair, because then you'd need to go back and review the previous week's information each week. So, here it is. Just take a deep breath and let's dive in. There are two primary file formats that can be created by digital cameras, JPEG and some version of RAW. Nikon users will be familiar with the NEF and NRW files. Canon shooters will know CRW and CR2 files. Sony users have SRF and SR2 files. Pentax and Fuji users will be familiar with PEF and RAF files, respectively. Those raw file formats are proprietary to the manufacturer, and a CR2 file from one Canon model might not even be the same as a CR2 file from another Canon model. It's really confusing. A JPEG file, on the other hand, is the same no matter which camera made it. If you follow any of the popular photography sites, such as Digital Photography Reviews website or the Photoshop and Lightroom group on Facebook, you've probably encountered some folks who proclaim that real photographers never shoot in JPEG mode. My time as a professional photographer predated digital, but back then we were told that real photographers never used, and you can pick one or more of the following here, in-camera metering, autofocus, a 35mm camera, or auto-exposure. In those days, real photographers used only roll film, and real, real photographers used only view cameras and sheet film, the ones that required 20 minutes just to set up for a single shot. Well, in my view, real photographers use whatever technology is appropriate to accomplish the task at hand. Today, that might be a digital SLR, a point-and-shoot camera, or even a cell phone. 
On the other hand, there are some folks who say you should shoot JPEG, and they say you're a failure if you don't get exactly the image you want right in the camera. Now, these are usually people who don't know the history of photography and are not aware that masters such as Edward Weston, Ansel Adams, and Dorothea Lange, and lots of others, spent hours in their darkrooms perfecting their images. Silly arguments over which equipment and techniques are the only ones used by real photographers are the most tiring aspects of these groups. So put those thoughts away. And don't panic. If you think this is an article intended only for professional photographers, put that thought away too. Knowing how the camera records and stores data from the sensor, as well as what it's doing to create a processed JPEG image, can be very helpful. The first and possibly most important fact to know about digital photography is this. Pixels are square. That is important because it has wide-ranging effects as you work with images in whichever photographic applications you choose. It's also good to know that digital cameras record only monochrome images. Really. For every photograph you take, there are three images. One through a red filter, one through a green filter, and one through a blue filter. These aren't filters such as you might have used with a film camera, though. Instead, the camera's sensor has tiny filters atop each of the tiny photosites on the sensor. Half of the photosites have green filters, a quarter have red filters, and a quarter have blue filters. The resulting data from the sensor is an electronic map of the level of light in each color from each photosite. White light consists of equal amounts of red, green, and blue. As a result, recording a single white pixel requires input from several photosites, two with green filters, one each with red and blue filters. Now, why two greens for every one red or blue? Well, that's because our eyes are more sensitive to green light than red or blue. The data from the sensor is not a photograph, but it does hold the information that your camera needs to create a JPEG image or to store a RAW file. When the information from the sensor is reassembled to create an image file, it's based on a mosaic of tiny photosite data points. You've probably seen mosaic art in a church, an art gallery, or a public building. From a distance, the image is sharp, crisp, and clear. Approach closer, though, and you'll see individual squares. There's a lot more going on here photographically than I can explain, briefly or possibly at all. But the mosaic pattern is a problem. The red-green-blue pattern has a name. It's called a Bayer array, and most cameras have a low-pass filter that they put in front of the sensor. It's a low-pass anti-aliasing filter that minimizes color moray patterns and aliasing that can appear as distracting patterns and jagged edges in images of subjects with hard edges and sharp corners. Building exteriors and interiors both have hard edges and sharp corners. So virtually all cameras have low-pass filters to eliminate that problem. But the low-pass filter makes every image slightly fuzzy. Photographers who shoot landscape images exclusively sometimes buy cameras without these filters because trees, mountains, and oceans don't exhibit the problem that sharp-edged structures do. So your digital camera almost certainly has a low-pass filter and the photographs it creates are just slightly out of focus because of it. And this leads to the first big difference between JPEG images and RAW images. The RAW image is simply the data from the sensor. Every bit of it.
literally. The camera records it without any processing. JPEG images, on the other hand, are processed in the camera before being written to the memory card. As a result, a JPEG image straight out of the camera will always look better than an image of the same subject stored as a raw image. So why should anyone ever want to shoot a raw image if the result is worse? Think of it this way. The raw image is equivalent to a film negative. Give that film negative to a professional lab and the resulting printer transparency can be improved by means of careful processing. The JPEG image is the equivalent of a photo from the drugstore, and it's as good as it's ever going to be. To create a JPEG image, the camera starts with the raw data from the sensor, examines all the pixels, interpolates the data to create RGB pixels, applies demosaicing, which further blurs the image, performs a color metric correction, maps the image to a color space, probably sRGB, which is smaller than Adobe RGB, adjusts the white balance, the contrast, and the color saturation based on the settings you used on the camera, and then adds sharpening to reduce the fuzziness caused by demosaicing. And the last step is the interesting one. It throws away most of the data. Your 20 megabyte raw image could be reduced to no more than 5 megabytes, maybe even less when it's a JPEG. The primary advantage of shooting JPEG images is that you don't have to process them before using them. News and sports photographers on a tight schedule may choose JPEG because of the quick turnaround. Anyone who almost always gets the exposure right in the camera and doesn't need the expanded processing capabilities that raw shooting provides can do pretty well with JPEG images. If you're a control freak, though, you will want raw. Sometimes I think of JPEG as the equivalent of frozen pizza, while raw is more like a homemade pizza. You will have to do all the work if you make the pizza, but it will be exactly what you want with precisely the ingredients you prefer. Is speed and ease of use more important to you, or do you prefer that homemade taste? Although I rarely shoot JPEG, I also never tell someone that RAW is the only option. Cameras offer two modes and lots of settings for a reason. Normally, I use Lightroom and Photoshop for photo editing. And Adobe's photographic plan for $10 a month, which includes both of those applications, along with Adobe Camera Raw and Bridge, is, to my mind, a bargain. There are other applications. Both Alien Skin's Exposure X3 and On One's Photo Raw have thousands of satisfied users. But if you really want to examine what happens when raw images are processed, taking a look at the open source raw therapy is a good idea. Where Lightroom, Exposure X3, and Photo Raw are all like driving an automobile with an automatic transmission, and Photoshop is more like driving a car with a stick shift, Raw Therapy is more like having an automobile delivered in parts, along with instructions for how to assemble it. In this regard, it's much like any other open source application. So let's take a look at it. There are, of course, images this week on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. So now it's time to consider possibly the second most important bit of information about digital image files. Raw file formats are proprietary, and no image editor can write changes back to a raw file. Lightroom stores information about the changes you make to image files in a catalog file, and most other applications use sidecar files. These are small additional files, either stored in the same directory as the image file itself, 
or in a separate directory. As a result, most changes to raw files are non-destructive, and you can always get back to the original image. JPEG files can be edited directly, but writing changes back to the file will trigger another round of compression and further degrade the file. So when you're editing a JPEG, the edited file should always be saved as a TIFF or a PSD so that the original file from the camera is not changed. Although you can open a JPEG file using a RAW file editor such as RAW Therapy, Adobe Camera Raw, or Lightroom, the types of changes you can make to that JPEG are quite limited. It's possible to recover highlights in a somewhat overexposed area of a RAW file. That's not an option for JPEGs. Those who previously used color slide film will recognize this problem because detail, once lost on a color slide, could never be recovered. Adobe Camera Raw and Lightroom are much easier to use than RAW Therapy, but RAW Therapy gives users some insight into the process of modifying an image created from a RAW file. Adobe products use a proprietary demosaicing process, while RAW Therapy allows the user to select specific demosaicing processes and then fine-tune the choice. That's a highly technical consideration that most people will never need. I mentioned it only as an example of the ability to modify this program's operation. Making changes like these without knowing exactly what you're doing would be unwise. It's also possible to open Lightroom as a brand new user and figure out how the basic controls work. You can't do that with raw therapy. You'll want to have the online manual open and use it as you work through your first few images, maybe your first few hundred images, keeping in mind that you cannot damage the raw file. That really can't be overstated. Because no image editing program can write information back to a RAW file, the RAW files are always safe. When you open a file for editing in RAW therapy, the first thing you'll notice is that the loaded image doesn't look like the thumbnail. That's because the thumbnail is a JPEG image that the camera created and included in the RAW file. So it has all of the JPEG processing. The RAW image is just that the raw image. It may appear to be disastrously pixelated when you open it the first time. Don't worry if that happens to you, just read the manual. Raw therapy is more like Lightroom than like Photoshop because it's intended to make overall modifications to an image, along with some localized modifications. It does not offer pixel level editing as found in Photoshop. If you consider yourself to be a computer geek, you might love raw therapy because of the astonishing number of adjustments that are possible and because of the customization you can add to the program. However, this would not be a good choice if you're new to digital photography or if you dislike reading long manuals to figure out how a program works. But for those who want to examine what's going on in the background, this might be a perfect application. In short circuits, Adobe's monthly update for Photoshop adds a blockbuster feature that was shown in a sneak peek a few months ago. It's called Select Subject, and it creates a starting point for selection of the main subject in an image with just a single click. It uses Adobe Sensei, the artificial intelligence system Adobe's been working on for a while. 
Image selection is used when there's a need to move a subject from one image to another or to remove the background. It's always a time-consuming process that requires the use of several tools. Magic Wand, Quick Selection, Marquee Select, and three versions of Lasso, the Plain Lasso Tool, the Polygonal Lasso, and the Magnetic Lasso. Once the basic selection has been made, the user needs to use a variety of other tools to refine the edge. This new feature called Select Subject doesn't eliminate all the work but it does automate the process of creating the initial selection. The most difficult subjects are those with hair and fur. In other words, anything with an edge that isn't clearly defined and has a lot of fine detail. I found that Select Subject does a remarkably good job even with these difficult subjects, and by automating the initial selection, it allows the user to start work on the refinement process earlier. And if the subject has clearly defined edges, Refinement might not even be needed. There's also a new slider that allows the user to control the amount of decontamination applied to an image. Edges often have color casts as a result of colors in the background, and removing these has always been a challenge. So having a control to take care of that really speeds up the process. Because computers, particularly notebook and tablet models, are now being sold with high-resolution monitors, Text in menus and elsewhere on the user interface often looks way too small. Windows 10 Creators Edition now offers a full range of choices for UI scaling factors from 100% to 400%, and Photoshop can now automatically adjust itself based on the user's Windows settings. These are the kinds of changes that help users immediately, and it's one of the primary advantages to the continuous update system that Adobe has adopted. We keep hearing that the PC is dead. Worldwide, 260 million computers were sold in 2017. That's a decline of two-tenths of a percent from 2016 sales. So that could be further proof that desktop, notebook, and tablet computers are doomed to be replaced by phones. But consider the final quarter of 2017. October through December sales were 70,600,000 units. That is an increase of about seven-tenths of a percent from the final quarter of 2016. Okay, not much of an increase, but it's the first increase in more than half a decade, and the prediction had been for a continued decline. Now, as useful as mobile phones are, there is still a need for their larger cousins, tablets, notebooks, and even workstations. Those who need more processing power, and particularly those who need more storage, still need more than phones. Computer analyst IDC says the market is still weak, but it seems to be stabilizing. Companies that have delayed buying replacements for aging computers are buying again. In addition, consumer purchases are increasing. At the recent Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, several manufacturers showed new PC models that work with Amazon Alexa and high-end laptops and convertible two-in-one devices that can be either tablets or laptops were being promoted this year, too. About a year ago, I replaced a desktop Windows computer with a notebook computer that's connected to more than 8 terabytes of external storage and a MacBook Pro. The two notebook computers combined consume less space and less power than the desktop system did. Power users such as photographers and video editors are migrating to notebook computers too. 
New systems promise much longer battery life and desktop-like computing power, but with high portability. IDC notes that these changes have energized the PC market, but still characterizes the market as challenging. IDC says Hewlett-Packard sold the most units last year, just under 59 million. Lenovo was second, about 55 million. Then Dell at 42 million, Apple at 20 million, Acer at 18 million, and Asus at 17 million. All other vendors combined sold about 50 million units. And Spare Parts this week has three units only on the website. Unit number one, Burger King has weighed in on net neutrality with a demonstration that includes fast burgers and slow burgers. Unit number two, there is a growing need for what's called out-of-band authentication. And unit number three, cryptocurrencies are hot, and now even Kodak is getting into the game. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.